Hello, and welcome to Introducing Me. I'm your host, Sarah. I started this podcast to get to know other people and lifestyles while discovering more about myself. Each episode, I'll give a new guest a chance to discuss their background, culture, interests, or whatever they want to talk about to help increase all of our own worldviews. Today, I would like to introduce you to Kristen. She is a TEDx speaker, international empathy educator, and she is a researcher helping people understand the beauty, indifference, and power of inclusivity. So I'm really excited to hear all about Kristen, the good things she likes to talk about, and just her in general. I'm excited for the conversation this morning. So Kristen, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit more about yourself? Well, first of all, Sarah, thank you so much for having me. This is always fun to talk to people who see the world similarly the the way that I do, that that stories are how we know everything better. Um, so hello, listeners. My name is Dr. Kristen Donnelly. I am a four-time TEDx speaker and um, one of the, and I think a lot about diversity and inclusivity and all those kind of things, because that first TEDx was actually about how tolerance is garbage and that if we keep focusing on it, it will remove our ability to know each other and that that's one of the things that went wrong. And I learned that through my years and years of both being in my family business and also my education and my travels around the world. I'm one of the second generation co-owners of my family network of companies. And we as a company exist to impact lives and create wealth. And we see wealth as holistic, as, um, financial, emotional, spiritual, economic, the whole nine. How do we as humans make someone else's life better every single day? And that is uh, my primarily historically, our companies have been manufacturing based. And I am currently um, in the middle of really not in the middle. It's really launched a new division, um, the newest division, I should say, called Abbey Research that focuses on empathy education. And we define empathy. And when I say we, it's me and my partner, uh, Dr. Aaron Hinson, who's also my best friend. We define empathy as a consistent dedication to understanding yourself and others so that we can all have a fuller human experience. And that's what I do. We do it. We have a podcast, a YouTube channel. I do workshops. We do, I do TEDx's. We do, you know, keynotes, et cetera, et cetera. But kind of like the whole purpose of my life is to impact lives and create wealth. So how is it that you got to where you are today? Like, I'm sure you weren't five years old being like, I want to impact other people and go for all of this. So how, what was your journey to today? So ironically, I did start saying it probably at seven. Um, (laughs) So my dad started really being intentional with helping me understand the world. Um, We joke when I was nine, but we really think it was around then. I started every time I got grounded, I did book reports for him. And um, my my little brother got a slightly different treatment. Um, But and I got grounded a lot. So I did a lot of book reports. I was a little bit um, mouthy and still kind of am. So it's been a lot of it is honestly my parents, both of them were very careful to make sure that I understood that my human experience was not the only one, that there was lots and lots of variety of how humans live life. Um, Even I grew up outside of Philadelphia and we are our flagship company is in Philadelphia in an historically under resourced neighborhood. And so, you know, a lot of other kids, dads went to work at like Bristol Myers Squibb. Um, and drove across the river to leafy Princeton. And, and they um, did that. And my dad owned a dye company. 
um, and would come home head to toe purple because something went wrong that day. And, um, you know, talked about how somebody didn't show up to work because they relapsed the night before. And so even just hearing those things where originally my dad and his partner started this company to bring no skill manufacturing back to the neighborhood. So even now, in order, there's always a position here for somebody who has no formal training in anything. If you show up sober every day and on time, we'll teach you everything else you need to know. Um, and that's been a really core value of the company. And so I, my, my dad started this thing when I was seven. So I just like grew up around it. This is how, this is one of those things where I get to college and I realize that not everybody grew up knowing the street value of Oxy um, because that was the conversations that you know, we had to know to know what was going on with some of our employees and not everybody knew like exactly, you know, the, what the difference between a flop house, a halfway house and a rehab, not everybody knew all that stuff. And I was like, oh, this is just like part of my ambiance of life. Um, and I was incredibly, I was always made very, very aware by my family of my, of the privileges that I had. And that's not the word that they would use. Um, we talked a lot about being lucky growing up. But now when we look back, it's like, no, like we just, my dad was able to leverage some privileges that he got and some luck that he had. And then he just kept leveraging that privilege for the power of others. And how do we kind of keep doing that? And so now that my brother and I are the second generation owners, that's our constant question. How do we leverage our privilege for the power of others? And did you leave the Philadelphia area to go to school? I did. So I'm an undergraduate from um, Asbury University in Kentucky. I have two master's degrees from Baylor University in Waco, Texas, and I have a PhD from the Queen's University Belfast in Northern Ireland. So you you did not stay near Philadelphia for education. I did not. I wanted to see the I wanted to see the world and I wanted to see when I I grew up in a space where there was a lot of homogeneity of ideas and homogeneity of backgrounds um that like presented anyway, you know, kind of like a Stepford value system. And I knew that the world was deeper and wider than that. I wanted to go to, to college over to undergraduate overseas. And my parents were like, no, <laughs> you need to go somewhere you can drive home. That's like, you know, so I figured I could drive within 12 hours and drew a big circle. Um, and Asbury ended up being a really good fit for me emotionally and um, just exactly what I needed at the time. And being 12 hours away was good because then the next thing um, that I did what right after college was move to Northern Ireland. That was my first job after college. And I just kept learning that the world was wide. The world was wide enough for all these ideas to quote Hamilton. And it was more beautiful and more distinct the more I allowed myself to experience other lives, the more I liked my own. So what was it like living in Ireland? Well, not to be pedantic, but I've technically never lived in Ireland, which is a separate country from Northern Ireland, which you're, a lot of people do not know. So there are two countries on the island of Ireland since the year 1920 um, and 1921. And I lived entirely in Northern Ireland, which legally belongs to the United Kingdoms of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. So um, I lived on the island of Ireland, but I've never lived in the Republic. And why that's really important is that to say 
is that they are two very distinct countries with some very distinct differences. Um, but at the same time, it, it was, you know, you, the only way you knew you were crossing the border was that your cell phone picked up a different network. Like, you know, and you have, like, we had different, I had different wallets for different currencies because Northern Ireland uses the pound and the Republic uses the euro. Um, and so I always had a dollar wallet, a euro wallet, and a pound wallet. So um, little things like that. But I loved it. It is part of where my home is. I married um, a Northern Irish fella um, and, and dragged him back with me over here. I, what was it like? It was familiar and different all at once. Um, sure, we both speak English, but the dialects are different. The, the slang is different. The cultural references are different, but humans are humans everywhere. And so there was, you know, Northern Ireland in particular was part of an armed ethno-national conflict from 1968 to 1998. And so everybody my age, you know, I'm 38 now, I was born in 1983. And, you know, I think about it and like my husband was born in 1978. And those years for all those folks growing up were, you know, I grew up in, in suburban Baltimore and then suburban Philadelphia. Like my biggest problem was usually that I didn't get what I wanted for Christmas. And my husband's sometimes biggest problem was that the border was closed or in order to go see his grandmother, he had to get, they had to get searched by army men with guns. Um, and it's just a real, there, you don't think about it ever until you walk by a mural or it, there's a parade that disrupts the whatever, or there's um, bullet holes still in a wall, or you listen, you eavesdrop on somebody, or like, because I was American, I got a lot of stories. So I'd be in a pub, people would hear my voice, and they'd be like, see here, are you an American? Absolutely, yes, I am. And we'd get to talking, and all of a sudden, I'd get all their trauma. And I'd hear the story. And and it was, I have a, I'm a social worker. So evidently I'm a really good listener enough that like, I get a lot of people's trauma stories. I get them. I've just have for a long time. Uh, I was a youth worker before I was a social worker, before I was a COO, before I was an empathy educator, I was a youth worker. And, uh, that's why I went over there. The first time I taught sex ed, actually, that was my first job out of college. I taught sex ed in Northern Ireland. And, um, one of the beautiful things about being given some people's pain and holding it and treating it as a gift one of the beautiful things was that I learned that simultaneously, as I already mentioned, humans are humans everywhere, which also, and everybody has trauma and that trauma is not comparable. And part of understanding the beauty of inclusivity is that if we can understand, if we can stop hierarchicalizing our trauma and we can actually unpack it with each other and, and really learn it, we'll have a fuller fuller human experience. Part of diversity is understanding the diversity of traumas that walk into a room um, and the diversity of experiences and things like that. So that's a long way. I mean, I had a ton of fun. Like, I mean, I miss it every day. You know, somebody asked me the other day, when do you think you'll stop being homesick for Belfast? And I was like, well, any day now, any minute now. Um, and when I was there, it was when do you think you'll stop being homesick for Philly any day now? Your heart is just planted in two places. There are still medicines that we, you know, stock up on when we go back because we like the UK ones better. And I always brought giant suitcases full of soup, uh, peanut butter back over to the UK for my friends and I. Um, so, yeah, you find home and everywhere. Every time you find home in more than one place, you're always a little bit homesick for that other home. Right. And funny enough, I have been to Ireland and I have been to Belfast in Northern Ireland. So it was just one of those, like, for me, I, you've been working for a few hours. I woke up in the last few hours. 
It happens. But I also like, I also try, it is an education piece. Cause so like my, the five years that I lived over there, my family would tell people Kristen lives in Northern Ireland and they'd be like, so she really loves Ireland. And my brother's like, she, no, but she does go to Dublin for work for sometimes. Um, so it's just one of those, it's one of those things. And sometimes, I mean, my husband's Northern Irish, he identifies as Irish. And so we shortcut it a lot and we just say that he's Irish, but if I have the opportunity to unpack it, I like to try. Yeah. And, and it is important. And I think in, and I don't, maybe you had a different experience, but in the U.S., when we learn about history, we focus so much on U.S. history that, like, it wasn't really until I was in college doing a study abroad in London and went to the different parts of U.K. and the different parts of Ireland, Northern Ireland, that I realized that whole educational piece even existed. Yeah, no, it's the same. I had the fortunate um, fortunation to take European history a couple times, but like the first time I showed up in Kenya, I definitely had never learned anything about Kenya. So yeah, same. So where else have you gotten to go? Cause as you, you just mentioned another country and you said, you know, you wanted to be able to see different lives. Oh gosh, where have I gotten to go? So, um, I did an internship in Denver and I lived there for a summer. Um, and then outside the country, most of the Caribbean, Mexico, Jamaica, Colombia, good chunk of Central America, everywhere in Central America, but Belize, South Africa, Malawi, Kenya, Rwanda. And then in Europe, all, almost all of Western Europe, except for Austria and Switzerland. And then like Russia, Poland, Estonia, all of Scandinavia. Um, yeah, I'm not, I chose a long time ago not to have kids. And instead of having kids, I chose passport stamps. And so my, and my husband's the same. We made that decision together. So to celebrate getting my PhD, we took a cruise through the Baltic Sea. So exploration is really important. Um, I backpacked through India for a class in seminary for four and a half, five weeks um, been to Hong Kong, been around Japan. Um, it's, I try to eat my way around the world. Um, cause food, it's one of my biggest tips for people. If you're meeting somebody from another culture, even if it, that other culture is you're from Arkansas and they're from LA, um, you don't know anything else to talk to them about. Ask them their favorite food, ask them the food they miss. That's the thing. Everyone can talk about food. Yes, definitely true. So what, Going back to, you know, the job that you have, the different things you are passionate about, can you talk a little bit more about um, the first TEDx that you had about tolerance? Yeah, sure. Uh, so I had the incredible privilege of taking the stage in May of 21 in South Lake Tahoe, California, to give a TEDx on essentially that we have to stop tolerating each other and we need to start welcoming each other instead because tolerance is entirely a passive entity. If you are tolerating somebody, all you are saying is that I, you are alive because I cannot kill you. That's it. You are alive. I acknowledge you are alive. Anytime you move past tolerance, anytime you know something about the person and not their label, um, anytime you, you, and that decision can be to not be in relationship with them. That decision can be, I hate them. <laughs> that decision can be, I, I really want to get to know them. But if you move past the thing that we're told to tolerate about them, 
whether that's their religion, their politics, their skin color, their ability level, their education level, and you understand that the person is a person and has inherent dignity and worth as a human, just like you do, you are doing something other than tolerance. And I think tolerance has allowed us to dismiss giant swaths of humanity without having to engage with the ideas or worldviews or their humanity. And so what I advocate for is to, to make decisions instead, make informed choices about them. And more often than not, really what we need to do is make the decision to listen and be hospitable with both our hearts and our minds. And if there are people that we can get to know, I mean, obviously we all have categories of belief systems that we cannot engage with. We all have that. For, for my husband and I, we have some really specifically and emotionally charged opinions about immigration, as you can imagine, being that we've both been immigrants in different countries. And so if we find out that somebody deeply believes something of anti us from that, from our view system, we have choices to make. We can usually we just draw the boundary. Hey, we can't talk about this. Like, hey, we obviously disagree on this. And that's cool. You're allowed like you're allowed your opinion in a certain way. I think that your opinion devalues people and you think my opinion doesn't keep us safe. Cool. At this point in time in our relationship, we can choose to never talk about that and still be in relationship or we can choose to walk away. And that's kind of what I'm advocating for, for a lot of things. That instead of wholeheartedly dismissing swaths of people, make informed choices instead. And the other thing that we need to remember is that we're using the word diversity wrong. And the reason our diversity programs aren't working is because we're treating diversity as a goal. And we're pretending that diversity doesn't already exist. You and I are racially homogeneous. We are potentially gender homogeneous. I don't know your entire identity, but we both present as women and we're both using female coded names. And so it would be very easy for a lot of people to look at our conversation and say, oh, there's no diversity there. But the issue is that obviously I'm assuming either we live in different time zones or we have different jobs because we're talking at the exact same time, but I've been at work for three hours and you haven't been. So there's diversity there. You mentioned a boyfriend. I have a husband. There's diversity there. We have different friend circles. We have different, you studied abroad in undergrad. I didn't until grad school, but we both studied abroad. So, okay, there's connection, but that's not, that's still heterogeneity. And so how do we open our definition of diversity to mean something besides racial diversity? We use that as interchangeable far too often. Oh, we need diversity in our company. Spoiler alert, you have it. What you might need is racial inclusivity. And if you're telling me that you need diversity in your company, then you definitely need ability inclusivity, educational inclusivity, worldview inclusivity. And the, the process of, of that difference, I think, like, I feel like Aaron and I are on a two-woman crusade to get everybody to understand what diversity actually means and to harness the power that you already have in your family, in your life, in your organization. You know, people ask us, especially in 2020, well, I don't have any Black friends. How do I even understand about race? Okay. Great question. Thanks for asking it. First of all, there's lots of black folks doing that labor on the internet. The in Welcome to the internet. Welcome to 2020. Welcome to the internet. There are YouTube channels. There are books. There are podcasts. There are documentaries. There are lots of ways to engage with ideas without engaging with a human, if you need to do that. 
The other is that you possibly have somebody of Latina background or um, native or indigenous background or Asian. And I just want to let you know that those are racist too. And so, you know, that might be an avenue that you can take. And, um, you know, a lot of kind of things like that, where we've been so acculturated to using diversity and racial diversity interchangeably that we can't make any progress because we're so caught up on increasing diversity when we already are diverse. Definitely. And that's something that, um, you know, we talked a little bit about, you know, with me starting this podcast and talking to different stories and all of that, part of it was based on, you know, kind of the idea of, I'd rather have conversations and talk to people than necessarily read. I love reading, but for some reason, reading nonfiction is just very... It seems like a textbook. It seems like I'm being forced to do it. And I'm like, I want to do it because I want to do it. <laughs> so what is it that you recommend for people to kind of take the steps to start realizing either that diversity, one, just like isn't race. We need to talk about inclusivity and changing the mindset from tolerance to being welcoming. Well, how much time do you have? So, um, but okay. So one of the first, let me, let me attack those as two different topics. So one of the first things that I would do is pull up a list of all of the protected classes from the United Nations. So you can be protected with race, gender, religion, sex, age, a whole lot of things. Read down the list and ask yourself in every piece of your life, have you felt in the center of culture with this or have you felt othered? Have there been times that you're, even if you're white, have there been times that your race others you? Have there been times that your gender others you, your ability level? Have you felt, have you walked into a room and felt weird that you had a college education? Or have you walked into a room and felt weird about your, like, have, have you ever felt weird because of a piece of who you are? So start there. Start understanding who you are. Start understanding the pieces of you that may or may not be okay, quote unquote, according to your culture. So culture, briefly, is a thing that we all make re and remake and destroy and rebuild every single day as a group within that organization, within that culture, within that society, within that country. So your family has a culture, your university has a culture, your workplace has a culture, your country has a culture. So in the United States and around most of the world, the cultural default assumption is white, male, heterosexual, um, cisgendered, middle class, able-bodied, and probably like some level of physically healthy in terms of weight. They'll have a college education. They'll have um, a steady job, a 401k. They'll be in a heterosexual relationship and they will have procreated. That's the standard. That's the assumption of normal. Every little piece of your life that falls outside of that means that your culture may not think you are normal. You've got a couple options. You can work to change the culture. You can work, you can work to understand the culture. You can do a lot of things. So first of all, that's my big, my first tip is to figure out where you feel othered or centered. And then pick a thing where you feel othered 
and learn about that. Find a podcast. I, I always say like people feel really overwhelmed by wanting to be better people. I get it. There's so much. And the last two years on this planet has shown us, I feel like it just like ripped open the soda can top and was like, here you go. Here's all the crap of humanity. All these things that maybe you delighted in ignoring or literally didn't know about. Spoiler alert, it's all up in your business now. You have to decide what to do about it. And so everybody got really overwhelmed, completely valid. And so my second tip is to pick one. Just pick one. Start somewhere. And then when you feel like you've got a pretty good grasp on that, pick another thing. Or pick the second part of that first thing. Pick another thing. So for example, Aaron and I spend our lives learning about the planet. And one of the things that we learn all the time is how much we don't know. So in the early part of 2021, when the, the terrorist attacks happened on the um, spas in Atlanta, the Asian spas in Atlanta, we were talking back and forth to each other and realized that we knew nothing about the Asian American experience. We might have had Asian American friends. We definitely ate Asian American food, but we didn't really know history or anything else. And so we went to a friend. I went to a friend who's married to a Cambodian immigrant. And I said, oh my God, like, where do I even start? I did the thing people do to me. Oh my God, I'm so overwhelmed. I don't know anything. I feel so bad that I should know all these things. And she, first of all, said, release yourself from guilt. It's an unproductive emotion. And in chat, instead, choose a productive emotion. And she said, well, I'm sure you've seen this, the documentary on PBS about Asian America. And I was like, oh, I have not. I've never even heard of it until this moment. She's like, okay, start there. So if you're listening to this and you're in the United States, PBS is free and on the internet. And there is a six-hour documentary about Asian America, the formation of the Asian American identity, the Chinese Exclusion Act, what it was like for, um, you know, Philippine immigrants, how we handled v the Vietnamese refugees that came over, what we did with Cambodia, all of those things done for you in a beautiful thing. Six hours, you just sit there and learn. And then from there, there was a lot of talking heads that wrote books. Well, I ordered those books and I started reading. And some of those people were on Twitter and Instagram. So I followed them so that my feed had things besides pet jokes. So much of this is the decision to start. Just pick a thing. You know, do a little bit of due diligence. Like if you want to watch a documentary, maybe Google it and make sure that somebody from that population is okay with it. Um, you know, do a little bit of due diligence here. It's the internet after all, but it's the internet after all. It's also free. And there's lots of people doing labor to explain how to, how to be a more well-rounded thinker. So there's that piece. The second piece of how to stop tolerating and start welcoming is also to just do it. So hospitality is talked about a lot in, and, and I, I love it. It's beautiful. It means opening up your, your life or your home. And I want to take it one step further and encourage everybody to practice radical hospitality. And don't just open up your home or your space, but open up your life. Get vulnerable, volunteer somewhere, get to know people who are different than you. And the way that you do that is to listen to them. Listen to them, 
ask them questions and listen some more. And the ways to do that, if you're not, I mean, with the, as you as you and I talked today, Sarah, Omicron is stomping its way across the United States. So I don't know when your folks are listening to this, but you may not be in a comfortable place to physically leave your house or volunteer anywhere. There, there are podcasts like Sarah's. There are Netflix shows. There's this wonderful, if you're into food, obviously I am, food's a big part of my life. But if you like food, there's a great show on Hulu called Taste the Nation, where Padma Lakshmi goes around the country, half an hour bits, half an hour of your life. And she explores a food culture somewhere in the US. One of my favorite ones is the one where she went to Charleston and talked about Gullah Geechee food. And that is fat that I knew nothing about, even though I had, I have been working in Charleston for years. So loved that. Pick that thing. Take a half an hour off from, you know, playing a video game and do that. Take a half an hour off from that. If you've got kids, they're a great excuse. There are so many international children's shows that you can access now. If you have a child, if you have a toddler and Disney Plus, there's this great Australian show called Bluey. You can watch Bluey and then learn about Australia and help your kid learn about Bluey's life in Australia. How do you become more hospitable as you become more hospitable? And all of that is, I, I love all of the advice and how it was all said and just everything about it. Now, you mentioned how, you know, a business might just say, I want diversity. And what they might more likely mean is, or should mean is racial inclusivity and then other forms of inclusivity. So how, maybe more directly, like the company that you're now second generation co-owner, how do you implement these sort of ideas and inclusivity in the business? One of the first fundamental beliefs that we have is that there are experts in this building who are not ownership. And so by doing that, and, in, and putting the inherent dignity and worth of humans onto other people. It sets up a culture in which we are all learners. So that's a first step. The second thing is that we um, operate as we're very small. And so I, we have the privilege, my brother and I, of, of kind of operating as a family as much as we can. So we can let people off for a longer bereavement if they need it. Than somebody else because we can understand that everybody we don't operate a lot on precedent we operate a lot on people and what is what do you really need right now um, we guarantee that if they're in this building they will be we will do everything in our power to make them emotionally physically and financially safe we've never done a financial layoff and we never will if we ever have to financially lay somebody off then we have failed as leaders and as owners so we've never done it in 30 years and we never will so we promise them that, and, and then in exchange for that, they've got jobs to do and their job, they are asked to do their job like humans with dignity, worth, and respect. Um, my brother and I also joke that nobody ever gets fired here. You choose to, uh, you choose not to work here anymore. So if I have fired, by the time I fire somebody, we have given them a lot of choices a lot of opportunities to change the behavior that is communicating to us that they don't want to be here anymore. So there's that. I am sure that there are ways that we fall down 
And I'm sure there are days that we, you know, you know, whatever. But I mean, there's some simple things. We have everybody signs um, a sexual harassment and a racial joking policy. If anybody is made physically, emotionally um, uncomfortable in this building, it is addressed immediately. Um, we, they are, we are very, very quickly told, you know, somebody makes a joke and they think it's funny. Brought, somebody will also pull them aside and be like, dude, that's not, we don't use that word anymore. Or that's not funny. Or can you not? And then we also spend a lot of time thinking about intent. Like, hey, this person made a joke that they thought was funny. They're not trying to be mean to you. So how do we find a resolution that makes everybody happy? And how do we remember that the offensive person is a person too? And how do we do it? So the short answer is that it's a lot of intentional work. Um, but it also means that it feels, we work, we work with human beings. We don't work with cogs in a machine. And do you find that people are willing to step up and willing to say things to do this? Like, I think I've seen online how people are like, don't go to HR. HR is only for the business and not for the people. So I feel like that's a big mindset that a lot of people externally might have that then to go into a culture like yours, it's very different. Oh, super different. I mean, I'm HR. So like, it's complicated. HR is complicated for them because it's the owner. Um, and like, we get that. Like, we get that. And so some of it is we call a spade a spade a lot. Like, hey, this is weird and awkward. Let's talk about it. Um, but yeah, there are definitely companies that they're like, HR is put in a really hard position. Um, but our, my thing is that anyone is allowed to vent about anything. And before I make it an HR issue, I will ask you. Are you filing a formal complaint or are you complaining? Um, and it's gone, you know, I've got to probably, I've only had one formal complaint in about six years. Everything else was just complaining. And so then my brother and I, I'll just be like, hey, let's keep an eye on this. I think there's something maybe festering. Um, I mean, we work with a lot of people who are very assertive. And if they are not happy, they will tell you. Um, I We work, we don't. I don't work with a lot of a lot of folks who um, like keep quiet for the sake of everybody else's feelings. Like that's just not that's not kind of the culture around here. Um, so sometimes sometimes we have to pull it out of them, but it's also intentional work. It's asking a lot of questions. And my brother and I are in, intimately involved in the hiring process. So if you don't vibe with us, you know you're allowed to walk away. Um, but it must be working because we have a really low turnover rate. <laughs> We've had we've had people here for over 20 years. Um, and so what we're doing must be working. But it's it's a lot of. It's a lot of making sure they understand that I will always that my job is to make sure they can do theirs. My job is to keep them financially, emotionally and physically safe. So that they can serve our customers by making the product, by testing the product, by selling the product. They, my job is to make them look good. And in turn, their job ends up becoming kind of making the rest of us look good. But my job is to have their back at all times. But I will also never lie that we have to keep the lights on. And I need to make payroll. So we're, you know, pretty transparent. These are the margins we need on this product in order to do what we just said. Um, 
And, and that is, I think it really helps is to just be as we're not fully like, you know, I'm sure everybody around here knows whoever, what everybody makes. I'm sure they've talked about it, but that's, we don't have, we don't have paycheck transparency. Um, but everybody gets an increase every year and everybody knows exactly why they're making what they're making. Everybody gets an annual review. Even if the annual review is us walking over, putting a post-it note on their desk and saying, this is your new, this is your new salary. You did a great job this year. And like high-fiving them because things got busy. Um, but we try really hard and I know it, it's also, it also kind of, I don't know, they do things for each other that makes me feel really like I'm not even a part of it. Like they'll do Pollyannas and I'm not a part of it. And I'm like, great, cool. We've cultivated a thing where you're all doing work together. So yeah, it's hard there. I mean, Brian and I don't sleep a lot. I don't think I've taken a single vacation in which I didn't talk about work on it in my entire life. Um, but we think it's working because our customers are served. We make stains that diagnose cancer. Like we're essential workers. It's really important shit we're doing here. And I've got folks that a lot of other companies wouldn't take a second glance at them as key parts of what's happening here. And I get to treat them and spoil them like humans. Yeah, it sounds like it's something to be very proud of. So I want to talk a little bit just because I'm sure uh, people always find it fascinating how you got into doing some TEDx talks this past year. Everybody does find it fascinating. Um, you are not wrong. So I'll say I landed four TEDx talks in five months. That's very, very rare. I gave my first three within five months. That's very, very rare. So my experience is the very definition of your mileage may vary. But I've been a speaker forever. Um, I, like I said, I was a youth worker. I was a college professor for a little while. I've been a speaker for a long time. And I've always kind of wanted to do a TED Talk. And during lockdown, in like August, when we were all, I was bored. Like you were just, I was bored. Somebody that I followed, a woman named Trisha Brooke, who is a speaking coach, a producer, a director. She was offering a two-day workshop on getting on a TED stage, essentially. She calls it like the art of the big talk or something like that. but. Essentially, it was, how do you do your big talk? And I was like, I got two days. So on a lark and out of boredom, I signed up. And that led to me doing her 12-week masterclass. And that led to me working with her one-on-one. And that led to me getting four TEDx's. So um, it was a lot of just saying yes. And a lot of saying, okay, I have this idea. And so for anyone thinking about doing it, a couple of words of advice. One is that Ted is not interested in stories. They are interested in ideas. So one of the reasons I've been so successful is that I have some very clear and unique ideas that I have been formulating for many years that I could support with stories because storytelling is so important. But I knew what my ideas were. So my applications were clear about what my idea was and what impact it would have. And the other is that every single TEDx is independently organized. So there is no uniform application process. There is no uniform anything except all you know for sure is that they're going to be more interested in ideas than stories because that's what the license says they have to be. So I've done it in South Lake Tahoe, California, Farmingdale, Long Island, Chicago, Illinois, and uh, there's an upcoming one in Camden, New Jersey. TEDx's are virtual sometimes. They are in person. They are all over the world. 
and it's not going anywhere. And so if you um, have a dream to do it, then do it. Um, but yeah, I really benefited a lot from working with a coach and getting that to happen because I had a lot of mindset work to do. A lot of mindset. I'd been a speaker forever, but I didn't absolutely did not believe that I would ever be worthy enough to do TEDs. And so I had to work through a lot of limiting beliefs around that and get really comfortable saying, no, this is what I'm good at. And this is what I want. And this is what I don't want. And this is what I'm not good at. And um, being really, really clear with those things. So that's how I got there is, I mean, the very cheeky answer is I applied. But the longer story is that I was bored and took a master class. And one thing just kept leading to another. Now, you took this master class, you've mentioned a couple different degrees. Are you just always learning? Oh, yeah. Yeah, my, um, I had finished my PhD. And I was I like six weeks later, I think I started a small business because I was bored and trying to learn. Um, yeah, I try really hard to be in a state of perpetual learning and understanding. I watch documentaries for fun. Oh, I'm a giant nerd. I'm a giant nerd. My main hobby is writing fan fiction. Like I'm a giant nerd. Um, but yeah, I love, I love stories. And I love people and I find them endlessly fascinating. And I try to learn about them as much as I possibly can. And because you opened the door, what sort of fan fiction do you enjoy? <laughs> so I got, I cut my teeth writing Dawson's Creek fan fiction back in the day. Um, and I have written... Harry Potter and West Wing. I dabbled in high school musical fan fiction for a little while. Um, and I primarily now write Marvel. And I read like a lot. Um, I read a lot more than I write in. Um, Marvel, check please. Um, Yuri on Ice. Um, Schitt's Creek. Ted, like pretty much if I'm watching a fictional television show or have seen, if I'm watching a fictional television show, I am probably reading fanfic about it. And is that, is that something that you bond with your husband over? No, um, not really. John is a nerd, but in a different capacity than me. Um, I mean, but like, I love him because like we were watching when we watched Falcon and Winter Soldier, he referred to it as, as our date with my boyfriends. So um, he was like, are we going to watch your boyfriends tonight? I was like, yes, we are. Thank you for understanding. Um, because I love Bucky Barnes with my whole heart. And he is open and accepting of that. Uh, no, we bond a lot over travel and uh, a lot over food. And uh, his pandemic hobby was learning how to cook even more than he already had, of which I was the grateful benefactor. Um, and uh, he, makes this, he makes this homemade ramen that tastes exactly like what we got in Japan. It was so cool. Um, but no, I mean, he is, I think he has read... No, I've read a couple paragraphs out loud to him, but like he's never read anything I've written and I don't think he ever will. He's been to some of my talks, um, but it took a little while for him to like really get on board with this part of my life. But he was always supportive. Oh, that's too great. Like I'm the comic nerd. I'm the one who watches sports. I'm the one like it's a lot of the stereotypical stuff. Um, he loves space, so he builds rocket ships out of Legos. And we go to Kennedy Space Center for fun. Oh. Now, do you have future plans to travel or are you waiting to see what happens with the world? Both and. Um, we obviously 
we've got family in, on the island of Ireland that we need to get back and see. We missed some weddings and we've missed some babies. Um, so that's when that's safe. My husband's gone back to see his parents, but I haven't been able to be back. Um, got some friends in Canada. We have tickets to the Canadian Grand Prix in Montreal this summer for the third summer in a row. So hopefully it will finally happen. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, for work, I travel all the time, even still. Um, Aaron and I run a research institute attached to Charleston Southern University down in Charleston, South Carolina. And so we go down at least once a month to check in on that, do some work um, and hang out there. But my list of where to go in the world is long. And the there's places I've been that I want to take John back to. Um, and there's places that neither one of us has gone yet. So it's um, Alaska's high on our list. We really want to get there. I turned 40 in a couple of years. And that's the goal is to head to Alaska for my 40th. But yeah, other people have college accounts for their kids. And we have uh, we have airline miles. So it's it's time to go. Of course. Now, is there anything else that you would like to share with the listeners here? Gosh, I have wa- I've wasted enough of their time. Um, I uh, I love my job. I'm sure that I hope you can hear that. Uh, I love I love my job, and I deeply believe that in the words of uh, in a paraphrase of Gandalf, uh, we're all here. For these times and we all wish they would be different but we're all here for these times and we can choose one thing every day that is loving to ourselves and to others it's an active choice but it's a worthy one and that's what i hope all of our legacies will be i love it now at the end of every episode i do ask a random question Okay. My question for you is, if you were a ghost, where would you haunt? Oh, man. Wow. Things I have literally never thought about before, ever in my existence. Um, there's a bar in Belfast that my husband and I had at our first date at. And it is closed and it's now something else. I'd haunt there. All right, that brings this episode to a close. I'll be leaving links for the various resources that Kristen mentioned throughout the episode in the description, along with a link directly to her YouTube that she has with Erin for Abby Research and a link to subscribe to their email list if you want to keep following and seeing the great work that they're doing those will be in the description and of course if you would like to connect with the podcast our website is in the description which brings you to all of our past episodes all the past texts to everything and our social media facebook instagram and linkedin so feel free to go follow those pages and of course in the description is also my email address if you would like to be a guest Or if you would like to support the podcast monetarily, that link is in the description as well. So thank you so much, Kristen, for spending time with me today and to my listeners for taking the time out of your day to hear a new story. Until next time, bye. Be well, everybody.